welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Today is one of the five major holidays on the traditional Christian calendar. So you've got Christmas, you've got Good Friday, you've got Easter, Ascension, and you've got Pentecost. And Good Friday is set aside to remember the crucifixion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to just catch you up on what happened throughout this week, the most important week in history. So you had last Sunday, we celebrated Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. He came in on a donkey, and he was proclaiming that, according to prophecy, that he was the true king, the Messiah. Monday, he went in the temple and cleansed the temple. Interesting thing about that is that he didn't go to the palace as a king. He went to the temple as a king because this king is God himself come to reign. Amen. Tuesday, he was uh, taught and debated his opponents. He uh, silenced them with his uh, brilliant answers and questions. Wednesday, the religious leaders had enough of him and they plotted to kill him. Thursday, which would have been last night, it was the Last Supper. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking his Father if there's any other way that people could be saved besides him taking that cup, that cup of suffering that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, if there was any other way, Father, you know, let this cup pass for me. And he knew after that time of prayer he knew that this was the only way. And so he got up, he met his betrayer, Judas, and those who had come to arrest him, and he voluntarily handed himself over to be captured by them. And that reminds us that Jesus was a volunteer for all the stuff we're going to describe tonight, not a victim. He knew exactly what he came to do, and the time had come to do it. And so Friday this morning, there would have been multiple unjust trials. They beat him, they mocked him, they whipped him, and they crucified him. The passage we're going to look at tonight is at the end of the crucifixion. It's in Mark 15, 33. So if you could turn there, it reads like this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And they said, wait, let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this manner he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. We're going to look tonight particularly at the cry of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon advised Christians to do this. Abide hard by the cross and search the mystery of his wounds. Abide hard by the cross and search the mystery of his wounds. And that's what we intend to do tonight. First, we're gonna look at the cry of Jesus' forsakenness. Then we're gonna look at the reason for Jesus' forsakenness. And last, we're gonna look at what our response should be to his forsakenness. First, the cry of Jesus' forsakenness. Um, between the four Gospels, guys, we actually have seven different things that Jesus said. So seven different sayings of Jesus while he was on the cross are recorded in the four Gospels. So if you look at all the narratives, you find seven sayings from the cross, seven things he said. 
This is the only one of the seven sayings that Mark records, and you can see why. It's the most startling. Look at verse 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when it says that he cried out, that word there is, is scream or shriek. And guys, his friends who stood by the cross, especially the women that are listed a little bit later, they never would have forgotten. They never forgot the sound of those words in Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. They never would have forgotten those words. And they reported those words in the Aramaic because I think it just seared in their minds as they watched it. And I hope you'll never forget those words. I've been praying that tonight you will hear those words and they will mean something new to you and you will never forget them just like those women that day never forgot them. Even non-believing scholars, guys, have noted that this account has the ring of eyewitness truth. So even people that tend to doubt the gospel accounts don't doubt this part. And the reason why is because if you were going to make up a story about the founder of a religion, you'd never write his death scene like this. You'd never write him dying with a cry of forsakenness. No, you'd write your hero dying confidently, wouldn't you? So this really is shocking. We're used to it, but if you look at it with fresh eyes, it's shocking. I mean, you hear the stories of martyrs throughout the centuries, and they all seem to die with more peace and composure than Jesus does in this passage. In fact, an example would be Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. They were burned at the stake under Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, in 1555. And as the flames were coming up on both of these men as they're being burned at the stake, Latimer encouraged Ridley this way. He said, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And the stories of the martyrs are always like that. They seem to always die with a lot more peace and a lot less terror than Jesus does in this passage. And you should ask yourself, why is that? I mean, Jesus was certainly the bravest man who ever lived. Why did he face the cross with so much more terror than those men did the flames? Why did Jesus die? with this cry of forsakenness. And some have pointed to his physical sufferings as the answer, and certainly his physical sufferings were severe. At this time, crucifixion was a common method of execution and torture by the Romans. It was so common that we have lots of historical records of it. We even have archeological evidence of it with finding little bones from people that were crucified. Let me just briefly remind you what crucifixion is. Um, I won't cover in depth the whipping, but before he was crucified, he was whipped with um, a whip that had these leather strands with pieces of bone and pieces of metal in it. And they whipped him just repeatedly and those little pieces of bone and metal latched into the skin and the muscle on his back and like fish hooks and tore it out. And he was whipped over and over and over again. That type of whipping often killed people in and of itself. But then they crucified him. And archaeological evidence of people that were crucified um, show that the nails were actually driven um, into the wrists, not into the palms. We know that because you can find the little carpal bones um, archaeologically, and you can find um, the scrape marks from where the nails were. And so what happened to Jesus was the soldiers, they felt his wrist. They felt the little carpal bones, a little depression right here in the wrist. Took a big, heavy iron nail, placed it there and pounded it, pounded it, pounded it in through into his wrists, pinning his arm to the wood. Quickly, they moved to the other side to the horizontal beam, and they took his wrist and they went to nail it. And one thing I want you to think about in this is that Jesus offered his wrist. 
Jesus wasn't, you know, holding his arm back. He put his arm out. He freely offered himself to be crucified for you, to take away your sin because he loves you. And so he put his arm out and they found the little depression in his carpal bones and, and pounded the nail into that one, leaving his arms with a little bit of slack so that he could have some movement. And I'll explain why that is in a little bit. Then they took that heavy horizontal beam and they attached it to the vertical beam that they would soon lift him up on. They put his right foot over his left foot and they drove a single nail straight through his feet, right between his metatarsal bones. His knees were left uh, flexed, and the reason for that is it gave him some movement to be able to move up and down. So every time Jesus wanted to take a breath, he actually had to push up on the nail that was in his feet. And when he did that, when he pushed up on the nail that was in his feet, he could actually breathe. It gave freedom for his chest to move so he could breathe. Problem with this position, though, of course, is that you're pushing up on a nail that's straight through your, your both of your ankles and scraping on the peroneal and plantar nerve. So he'd have searing pain shooting down his toes and up his legs whenever he needed to breathe. When he got too tired and it was too painful, he would hold his breath and he dropped down like this. And of course, then he suspended by his wrists where the, the nail would have been scraping against his median nerve and pain shooting up his fingers and down his arms. Any of you guys who had any kind of carpal tunnel issue know how sensitive that area is. Just imagine a nail that was driven through there just scraping along those median nerves. When he could no longer hold his breath, he again pushed up, freeing up his ability to breathe, but then causing the searing pain to switch down to his feet. And then when he could no longer handle that, he'd hold his breath and drop down. And he did that all for those hours, all that afternoon, up down, up, down. He twisted, he writhed all day. The pain was excruciating, it was inescapable. And it's all captured in those simple words, Mark 15, 24, and they crucified him. Guys, we have a God who has suffered. And one of the most challenging questions in any religion is the question of suffering. Why does suffering happen? And you really have three different options. You have karma, chaos, or Christ. Karma says that when you suffer, it's your own fault. You're actually paying off some karmic debt, something you did wrong, either in this life or a past life. And so when you suffer, it's just your own fault. It's kind of merciless, isn't it? Um, chaos is the answer of naturalism. Naturalism says there's no God. There's no underlying meaning to the universe. And so when you suffer, it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. Um, it's just senseless. It's chaos. So you got karma, you got chaos. And then your third option and your only other option is Christ. In Christ, we have God himself suffering unjustly and a God who can work all suffering for good. A God who suffered to one day end all suffering. And so those are your options, karma, chaos, or Christ. And when it comes to the problem of suffering, guys, we have the best possible God. We have a God who suffered right? Have you been betrayed? Jesus was betrayed by a best friend. Have you been mistreated? Have you been treated unjustly? Jesus was treated unjustly. Have you been forsaken and alone? Jesus is the ultimate alone forsaken one. Have you suffered bodily? We just heard that Jesus has suffered bodily. Have you endured the death of a loved one? We know that God the Father watched his son die. He endured the death of his only son. When it comes to the problem of suffering, guys, we have the best possible God. A God who is scarred, 
and a God who's making all things new. And all these physical sufferings that I just described were actually prophesied a thousand years before Jesus was born in the song that he quotes. In Psalm 20, when he quotes, says, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? He's quoting the first line of a song in the Old Testament, Psalm 22. You guys could turn there. That'd be great. In Psalm 22, it starts the way Jesus was saying on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far off from saving me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God. I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They, trust, they say, he trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are the one who took me from the womb. You made me to trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast by birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to save. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Basham surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. They are raving, roaring lions. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melts within my breast. My strength is dried up as like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. As you can see why Jesus would quote this thousand-year-old song on the cross. It fits in perfectly. It talks about how he, a thousand years before he came, it talks about how he'd be mocked and beaten. How his, his bones would be pulled out of joint. How they would cast lots for his clothes. How they would pierce his hands and feet. Amazingly, this prophetic song was written by David a thousand years before Christ. And with the Psalms, they're songs, and they're, most of them are written by King David. And often we can connect King David's songs to points of his life. So, for example, we know with Psalm 51 or 32, we know what that connects to in the life events of David. So we can read about David's life in the narrative of the historical books, and then we can look at the Psalms and go, oh yeah, that's where that fits. But Psalm 22 is different. There is no place in David's life where Psalm 22 actually happened to him. For millennia, people have asked, like, when did this ever happen to David? There's no record of that literally happening to him. Psalm 22 describes more than just persecution. Psalm 22 describes an execution, right? Psalm 22 ultimately wasn't about David. While David might have felt forsaken by God, he wasn't. On the cross, Jesus really was forsaken by God. And there's some mystery here of Jesus' forsakenness by God because, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, one God, three persons, and that unity of the Trinity can't be broken. It's not like there was a rupture in the Trinity or something like that. 
And the father never stopped loving his son. His son is actually an act of greatest obedience at this moment. But we have to take Jesus' word for it that he was experiencing the full forsakenness, being forsaken by God. That's what he says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that, guys, was the greatest suffering Jesus felt on the cross. Notice what Jesus cries out. He, does, he, he cries out, my God, my God. Jesus doesn't cry out, my hands, my hands. He doesn't cry out, my feet, my feet. No, Jesus' greatest suffering on the cross isn't his hands or his feet, but the absence of his God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus could have taken anything at that moment, if he had just felt his father's peace and his father's love. If he, if he could feel that from his father, he would have been able to endure all this with great um, resolve, with great composure. But for the first time, he felt totally alone, abandoned, forsaken by the one he needed most. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what's the answer? Why was Jesus forsaken by God on the cross? He was forsaken for your sin and for mine. Look down to verse 37 in Mark there. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus' death tore the curtain in the temple. What does that mean? Well, the curtain was this heavy curtain that separated off the Holy of Holies, which was symbolically God's very throne room. There was this curtain, a very heavy curtain that separated off that Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And that curtain was there because of sin. That curtain was there to be a symbol of the separation between a sinful people and a holy God. It's a picture of our sin separation from God. And that separation is a problem, guys, because God is where all the happiness comes from. God is where all the happiness comes from. You might be a person tonight that, like a lot of modern people, would say, you know, I'm pretty happy without God. I don't really need God. I'm kind of plenty happy without him. That's like someone, guys, that lives indoors and saying, I don't need the sun. I don't need the sun. I don't really like being in it. Quite happy without it. The fact is, though, that everything you enjoy in your indoor life is owing ultimately to the sun. If the sun were to suddenly leave, everything you love would leave with it, Right? The sun is the ultimate source of all physical life on earth. In the same way, God is the source of all joy in the universe. Like people living inside avoiding the sun. If you don't want God right now, if you think you're pretty happy without him, it's just because you're unaware that you're getting all of your happiness from him indirectly right now. There's no blessing that you have that you have, aren't receiving actively from God right now. God is graciously giving you life and breath and pleasure and relationships. But guys, our sin has a cost. Our disregard and rejection of God has a cost. Eventually, if we forsake God long enough, we'll get what we say we want, which is for God to leave. And then all of a sudden, like the loss of the sun, we'll realize it wasn't what we really wanted. Leaving with God would be all joy and peace and meaning. There is no happiness for those who have been forsaken by God. In 2 Thessalonians 1, it describes it as eternal destruction, listen to this, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. C.S. Lewis said, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. All we have to do, guys, to, to see what that separation 
between us and God would be like at the judgment. You know, all we have to do to see that is to look at the cross and to see what Jesus is experiencing. John Flavel said that Christ had, if Christ hadn't done this for us, we would howl this hideous complaint in the lowest hell forever. We would be the ones in hell forever saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Except, guys, we would know the answer, wouldn't we? We would know the answer was our sin. Deep down inside, we would know that his judgment was just, wouldn't we? That's what Jesus was experiencing for you on the cross. And it was worse than the nails and the whip. It was the forsakenness of hell, the price for your sin. And that explains why Jesus died feeling forsaken and Hugh Latimer didn't, right? Latimer knew that Jesus had already taken all the real flames of hell for him. He knew that he couldn't be forsaken because Jesus had already been forsaken for him. Jesus was taking the judgment for our sin. And we see that judgment was happening even in what happens in the beginning of our passage when the sky goes dark at noon. At noon, it says that the sky went dark. And we know that that darkening of the sky is a sign of God's judgment. You guys remember back when we were in Exodus and the darkness went over Egypt. It was a sign of judgment. Amos describes that darkness this way. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. And I will darken the earth in broad daylight. And I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will make it like the morning for an only son. Here's the thing. On the cross, Jesus was truly forsaken so that you'll never be. David, when he wrote Psalm 22, he felt forsaken, right? And that psalm's there for us whenever we feel forsaken. It's in God's songbook for those who feel forsaken. But David wasn't really forsaken. He couldn't be. And neither are you if you trust in Jesus as your Savior. Jesus was truly forsaken by God so that you'll never have to be. So that you'll have the promise of Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That curtain that speaks of the separation, the sin separation between you and God has been torn by Jesus Christ. And so what's our response? If you're not a Christian tonight, let me put it to you this way. You need a top-down salvation. What do I mean? Look at verse 38. The curtain of separation between us and God was torn from the top to the bottom. Isn't that interesting? And this is something, guys, that it makes Christianity completely different from all other religions. It's a top-down salvation. All other religions are a bottom-up salvation. They say you have a problem, you know, bad karma or sin or whatever it is, your badness, and you need to work it out somehow. You need to work it out through religious acts and penance or giving or good deeds. All of the religions say that, yeah, there's this curtain. There's a separation between you and God. But what you need to do is get down here and you need to start tearing it yourself by your own works. All other religions say it's, it's a bottom-up thing. But guys, you have no use for a bottom-up salvation. It's hopeless. It will never work. And guys, let me ask you this. How would you know if it did work? How would you know that you had done enough works? How would you know that you were good enough to be accepted before God based on your own works? How would you ever know? The answer in most religions is you'll find out when you die. It's a little late, right? It's a little late. You need to know now. You need to know now whether you're right with God. And then we hear in the gospel this good news of God saying, I see that separation between you and me. Let me get that for you. 
Let me take care of that for you. In the gospel, we hear the good news that God became a man, and by his perfect life and his sacrificial death, he tore the curtain. He tore that sin separation between us and God from the top to the bottom. It's a top-down salvation, right? And he did it by being torn himself. Hebrews 10, 20 says it this way, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, he was torn to tear that separation. It's, um, it's been a hard, uh, what, month, month and a half? I don't know how long it's been. <laughs> it's been a lot of difficulty, right, for all of us. And um, we've been shown our weakness in a lot of new ways, haven't we? We've been shown emotional weakness, maybe physical weakness. We've been shown spiritual weakness. Our weakness has come out in this difficulty, right? Uh, we see it, spouse sees it, friends see it, kids see it, everyone sees it. We're seeing our weakness. Guys, learn your weakness here. You need God himself to remove this barrier. You are too weak to do it. Every single human being is too weak to do it. Only God can do it. Had to be torn from the top down. And only Jesus offers that. And that's what we celebrate tonight as we take the Lord's Supper. And I say celebrate because Good Friday really is good. Jesus spoke of the cross not as his defeat, but as his victory. On the cross, Jesus was victorious over sin and death and Satan he tore the sin separation between you and God forever. And he's going to use that work that he did on the cross to make all things new in the world. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we'll never have to be. He suffered to one day end all suffering. And we see the beginning of that end of suffering, that new era, um, two days after the cross. Because the cross, guys, isn't the end of Jesus' story. It isn't even the end of Psalm 22. After that part in Psalm 22, when it describes Jesus' horrific, terrible death, it goes on to describe, well, it hints at at least, his resurrection. Take a look at Psalm 22, verse 22. So after this whole part about being pierced and all these things, it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You're like, wait, what? I thought he died. There's a hint of resurrection here, right? This is how the story ends. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard him when he cried. That's the rest of the psalm. That's the rest of the story for you. That's the story of resurrection. Just like the creation week, you think back to Genesis 1, God worked in those six days, and on the sixth day, he finished his work. That was his last day of work. His work was finished on the sixth day. Jesus was finished with his work of redemption on that sixth day, on that Friday, on the cross. And just like in the creation week, when God rests on the seventh day, Jesus rested on the seventh day, that Saturday, in the grave. And then he rose the first day, Sunday, First day of a new week. It was the beginning of a new week of creation. It was the beginning of Jesus making all things new. And guys, if you're trusting in Jesus tonight, that new creation's already begun in you. Paul said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Are you new? You can be if you'll trust in Jesus Christ tonight. Turn from your sin, trust in him, and be a part of his new creation. Amen.
Father, those original eyewitnesses never forgot the scream of forsakenness. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. They just couldn't get it out of their minds. Help us to feel the weight of the cross, the love of the body who bore it. Father, help us to remember that cry of forsakenness when we suffer so that we can remember your promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. Father, then what shall we say to these things? If you're for us, who can be against us? If you didn't spare your own son, your only son, but gave him up for us all, how will you not with him graciously give us all things? Father, we are so thankful that you have accomplished our salvation yourself, that you have sent your own son. Holy Spirit, we're thankful that you made this sacrifice all possible and that you've awakened our eyes to its reality tonight. Father, help us to live as those new creations. Lord, give us the grace to live for you in a new and living way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.